Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution, not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hello. Welcome to the Sarah Avon Stover podcast, a space to come home to your inner wisdom. I'm Sarah, best-selling author and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality. And this podcast was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations about all different facets of the feminine spiritual journey. But above all, I created this because I believe that when a woman gets still and quiet enough to hear her inner wisdom, she's able to live her true path in the world. I hope this podcast helps you do just this. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, friends. It's good to be here with you. Today, I am looking forward to sharing our first podcast guest of the year, Ari Hanavar. And a friend introduced me to Ari a couple of months ago after gifting me for my birthday her exquisite oracle deck, Rumi's Gift, which is adorned with her Persian calligraphy. Truly, it's one of the most beautiful decks I've seen. 
Intrigued, once I probed a bit deeper, I discovered that Ari is full of treasures. She's a woman I sense you're going to be seeing and hearing a lot more of in the months and years ahead. She is really a wonderful female role model for these times in so many ways. Ari Hanavar is an award-winning writer, visual artist, and speaker. As a journalist, she is curious about many topics, including social justice, parenting, and mental health. Her words have appeared on Parents, Teen Vogue, The Guardian, Washington Post, Yes Magazine, Vice, Elephant Journal, and elsewhere. Growing up in Shiraz, Iran, Ari learned Persian calligraphy from an old master. Years after her lessons, she still melds her love of Persian poetry and calligraphy and creates calligram paintings. In 2018, she used a few dozen of her calligrams to bridge elements of Western Tarot and Eastern practice of poetry divination in Rumi's gift, Oracle Deck. The box includes 33 Rumi calligram cards produced in collaboration with the talented visual artist Carmen Costello, 33 poem cards, and an accompanying commentary booklet featuring original translations and meditations. Rumi's gift is now available online and at local bookstores. As a performer, Ari collaborates with musicians of different cultures and presents a dynamic program including poems, stories, and music. As part of her continuous efforts to build poetry and musical bridges across war-torn and conflict-ridden borders, she's the Iranian Musical Ambassador of Peace and has spearheaded the the Drop Poems, Not Bombs project. She's also the Vice President of Gente Unida, a human rights border coalition. An acclaimed speaker, Ari teaches workshops and presents at conferences, universities, nonprofits, and other venues. Her debut novel, A Girl Called Rumi, is forthcoming in 2021. You can visit her online at rumiwithaview.com. And now, enjoy my conversation with Ari Hanavar. Welcome, Ari. It's really wonderful to have you here on the podcast today. And uh, we always start our conversations here with a personal check-in. And can you share with us where you're joining us from today, as well as how you're doing at the levels of body, heart, and mind? Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Um, What a great way to begin with a (sighs) check-in. My body feels relaxed without any discernible complaints or issues right now. Um, Sitting on my chair cross-legged on a corner of a living room in San Diego. And my breathing is nice and relaxed. I feel my lower back and ribs expand as I inhale and my jaw loosening as I exhale. And my heart feels spacious, um, welcoming and vulnerable. I feel a tingling sensation that 
radiates from my heart through my rib cage and the front and back and down and up. And uh, under a patina of excitement about our forthcoming conversation, my mind feels pretty calm, clear and still. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and for being so in tune with the subtleties of your experience and the sensations. I think it just, I know it helps me to drop deeper into my body and I'm sure it's doing the same for, for our listeners right now. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, I wanted to dive in um, as I was doing research for our interview I came an article, I came across an article that you wrote earlier on during the pandemic where you were talking about how small joys are essential for resilience. And just knowing your your story to some degree, this is something you know all too well, having grown up in a war-torn Iran and I want to explore that more with you soon, but for right now I want to read the introduction to this article which says, this article shares a glimpse of civilian life during wartime blackouts, lockdowns, and ration lines. It explains that cultivating joy isn't an escape from suffering, spiritual bypass, but it's an important tool for increasing our capacity to be with suffering, our own and others. So at the time that that we're having this conversation, there's a lot continuing to unfold in the world. We're about 10 months into the pandemic now. Last week, there was a supremacist insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And next week is the presidential inauguration. And I'm curious, what are you doing these days to help you stay resourced, like, what small joys in your daily life are helping you find this resilience? Ah, yeah. Um, So just to give a little bit of context uh, in this realm on the planet Earth, joy and suffering are inextricably linked. And uh, lucky for us, when we increase our capacity for joy, we also increase our capacity for suffering. And this might sound counterintuitive because we've kind of been in this no pain, no gain mindset for so long that it's hard to believe that becoming more joyful also makes us more resilient. But uh, science backs it up and um, personal experience backs it up. So what, um, for me, lately, hummingbirds have been a source of joy. Uh, It started right around uh, a few weeks after the pandemic, where I was at a nursery picking out some plants for my garden, and I saw a uh, hummingbird uh, feeding on, on a plant, And I just stuck my hand there and he or she perched on my extended index finger. And I was, I had no idea this would happen. It was just such a surprise to me. 
And there were people watching this too, and they seemed surprised. And then he flew away. And then um, maybe a week later, I was I had opened the kitchen door, and two hummingbirds flew in. And then they couldn't get out, so they were banging themselves against the window. And so I just reached out and took each one and put them out. And I was like, wow, this, this has awakened something really fun and joyful in me, uh, communing with hummingbirds. So I started having uh, holding hummingbird bird feeders, handheld ones in my hands. And, um, you know, they started coming and uh, feeding from my hand. And I have four regular visitors now. So um, as the pandemic continues and social distancing and online and Zoom, my whole, my whole household is on Zoom right now. So um, there's, I just was like, okay, I'm, everyone's talking at the same time. I'm gonna be exiled to the front yard. And I just bundle up in the winter time and I um, have even, you know, as I'm typing on my computer, I have the, the the hummingbird feeder, like a toe ring around my toe. And uh, and they come every several minutes and uh, um, they feed. And it just, it's such a good reset for me. As soon as they come, I have to be still. I have to be calm. And uh, it's a moment of meditation and then I go back to do doing what I'm doing. And it just has opened up this whole new world for me that that was that I wasn't privy to before. So that's one thing. But just being out in nature has been really wonderful. Um, also, I've become a huge fan of praying lately, not in a transactional form of praying, but but just kind of pouring my love into what I'm doing like a, this this falling in love with uh with whoever i'm with and uh if, I, if i'm drinking water i thank the water and i thank the vessel that delivers the water and i thank the sky and it just kind of can take off on its own and become this huge love fest uh which i i can indulge in you know several times a day with no problem so that's another thing <laughs> Those are all great things. Just so, so simple, but so they go so deep. Mm. And you mentioned that you're, I know like so many people right now, you're living in a home with your family and everyone's on Zoom all day, every day. And I'm wondering what are some ways that, that um, like you're helping your child to have resilience during this time or that you as a family unit are finding resilience together during this time? Yeah, we were talking about this last night. Uh, I'm such an introvert right now, I think. And, uh, and you can't really be an introvert right now either. You can't be an extrovert because, of course, you uh, are are uh, uh, bound to to stay at home and do all the things that prevent you from being social with others. But introversion is also hard for families because there's not really any space. We're always together. So, so there's just not easy to go inside. And really, 
you know, um, have that moment of solace and space. So that's just this been this challenge between um, the um, my household, you know, just had to navigate all of this. And I was talking to my son yesterday, last night about resilience and, uh, and he's a skateboarder. So that really helps him be solitary, but also um, have this kind of get his wiggles out and do all the um, ways that he can um, occupy his mind doing something creative and physical. And uh, occasionally he's able to see other skateboarders across the street skateboarding, you know, like not um, getting close to each other, but but uh, have a little bit of a social interaction. He's a very social child. So that's that's definitely been difficult. One way that we are mitigating the effects of uh, the restrictions is to have a lot of rituals. Uh, we have connection rituals between my husband and I have connection rituals, even though we're together 24 hours a day, it seems like we miss so much about what is happening for us, uh, you know, on, on a day-to-day -day basis, because if we don't talk about it. So, so the connection ritual, we have this kind of a ritual space set up with candles and a talking stick and just really being together. So we do that. My husband and I do it. My son and I do it. My son and husband do it. And then the three of us um, do this as like a family meeting. And, and somehow this, you know, satisfies everything. It satisfies the introversion somehow, somehow just feeling that connected that people can really tune into what, how, each of us, what our needs are at the moment, what our desires are, and uh, give the space or more love, more support in that way. And it also is, it uh, satisfies the extroversion of having this sense of a nano community that, that we've uh, created. So, so that's been a lifesaver for us. It sounds like it, that's a beautiful ritual. And I hear you. I am also I'm also a really big introvert, but I'm in a different situation than you. And uh, this pandemic has just enhanced that introversion because I live alone. I mean, I live with my dog, but basically live alone. And so there's just there's a lot more alone time. And I, I feel for you. I imagine that it it is challenging at times to just not have that that space and quiet that you need to recharge, but that those deep, real connections are so nurturing and so fulfilling. Mm -hmm. and, and also what rituals do create in this space to allow for what's going on for us to come forth without it being personal or offensive, because it's, it's just such a beautiful space. So I can say that I'm just sick of being in this, um, you know, situation. I, I don't want to see either of you ever again, you know, that you know, right. say that in a, in, a, in a way that is received because it's, it's, uh, it's coming not from like a, uh, a it, it's, it's just 
yeah, the, the space that's created allows for those things to come and be received. And then others can, you know, my son can say, oh, I really, I am sick of you guys too. I want to be with my friends, you know, <laughs> like I can. So, so there is like, we can all hear those things without being offended or distracted or, or taking it personally or, or anything else. And, and we all have, are able to say what we need to say, communicate, which is huge. You know, communication is huge at this uh, time of, you know, just being so inundated with uh, so many things happening. So, so the, the um, noise to signal ratio is so high. So how to decrease that? So what is coming out of our true, um, you know, very simple essence what is what is that and and how is it received right and so Ari in addition to these like these beautiful interactions with the hummingbirds and these living in a in a more prayerful way and having these rituals with your family what are some what are some other elements if any of your own spiritual practice that that you are doing right now being with in nature, even though it's the urban, not out, you know, um, I don't have the luxury of being in Colorado in beautiful wilderness, um, you know, within just a few minutes. But it's more like the urban. So, so just that's how kind of um, resilience works too. We're so adaptable, and we're able to just. You know, something that we took for granted, like just sitting outside for a minute, now has become this luxurious thing um, that, um, and also I don't really distinguish between, you know, emotional, spiritual, physical, it's all seems to be together in, in some uh, wonderful soup, cosmic soup. So, um yeah, so, so just being outside in nature has been really wonderful. And uh, the practice of being kinder, something that I'm, you know, that's just my, um, my thing that I work on, uh, especially with my child, especially with my husband, is, uh, you know, to, to just treat the people that I am constantly around with their but the dignity, reverence, and respect that they deserve has been, because um, we usually are good with strangers and colleagues and all, but it's the people around us that uh, sometimes we we kind of take them for granted a, a bit. And uh, so that 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 is probably where I'm kind of putting most of the effort is just really being good at my relationships right now. That's a big deal. Yeah. Really just really one of the one of, if not the most important. So I want to shift gears a little bit and just go back to, to your childhood and particularly the period when you were, you were growing up in a war torn Iran and you grew up under an oppressive regime as well as during the Iran Iraq war. And I'm sure this is just 
a huge topic for you. And so I'm wondering if there's a particular memory or even two that really stands out from this time in your life that helps to encapsulate what it was like for you. Mm-hmm. So to give a little background, when I was six, women of Iran lost their right to ride a bicycle or sing in public. And this is as an of a aftermath of the Islamic power grab of the revolution that happened. The Islamists took over and uh, um, implemented a strict version of Sharia law, which deemed a woman half as much as worth half as much as a man. And so this was uh, understandably really difficult. My best friend was a boy and I was, you know, I wanted to run and scream and do all the things that he did, but uh, I couldn't. So, so, um, and then a year later, Saddam Hussein attacked Iran and started a war that lasted eight years and took a million lives. While this was happening, um, what really stand out, stands out for me is the fragility of life and impermanence. That was something that occupied my attention because in my elementary school, when I was growing up, there wasn't a kid who hadn't lost someone to war or political oppression. So life became something very flimsy it wasn't something you took for granted. And also the injustice of what the regime was doing to dissidents and to women made a profound impression on me. And um, what really made, um, you know, changed, changed everything one day was uh, when my sister's classmate who was a teen he, she was, um, she, first of all, half of my sister's classmates as a senior in, in uh, high school, half of them were in jail. So were arrested. So, so teenagers were being arrested. Mm-hmm. And what then, were they arrested for? It was rarely revealed. It could be something paltry as holding a pamphlet with opposition's writings on it. It would be um, maybe they didn't um, have their hijab, in, um, you know, correctly. Like they had hair showing in public. Um, it was just all sorts of different. Some maybe someone told on them, like a spy said, "Oh, this person is with the Mujahideen." You know, then they would get arrested. So. Um, it became this uh, situation of terror. And one of our neighbor's daughter, who was a classmate, she was executed and um, without really any kind of a trial, her parents didn't get to see her. Maybe she had a trial, but it wasn't public. They, they didn't know. So my father asked uh, the slain man's, uh, slain um, daughter, girl's father, what happened? You know, how, how, what, what did they kill her? And uh, he said, I don't know. They never told us. They just said, come get her body. So um, this was definitely one of the memories that stands out 
for me and uh, um, I'm um, it was it was just I mean she had come to our house she was such a sweet girl and my sister was of course so traumatized and uh, and this is it was way more personal than a bomb you know dropping being dropped on you and and um, from an enemy this was like our own people like a um, immune system attacking itself was yeah. it was a bed like that um, but then also there were moments of uh, watching the anti-aircraft missiles shoot up in the air and when we were on our rooftops you know when we were brave and uh, those were really brilliant moments because they were filled with terror but at the same time when someone would shout a line of poetry, um, because, you know, Iran is a nation of poets, uh, it would just, from an ecstatic verse of Rumi, it would change my perception of the moment. And my life would become as glorious as the 13th century poet. So there was that also. I'm just taking a breath here. It's it's hard to even fathom. And um, I'm intrigued about a couple of things I want to go deeper into. And the first one is obviously these restrictions on women. You said the impact on you was significant. Can you speak a little bit more to that? What kind of impact this this had and has had on you? Um. Well, I couldn't ride my bicycle, and I I was uh, imagining a kid who's restricted from playing with their friends, and uh, who you know my my friend my best friend was a boy. I cut my hair and pretended to be a boy for a while just so I could play like boys, but um, that didn't last long um, because someone told my parents and I was like, no, you got to wear your hijab (laughs) and become Uh a girl again. Uh, so, so the, from a girl's perspective, it was awful to all of a sudden, you know, your rights are taken away, you know, in a very, uh, real way. And, um, so as a girl, as the boys could be all physical and athletic and do all the things, you know, I, didn't have an outlet for for those things. Music and dancing was also illegal. So there was none of that either. And um, women actually had to sit on the back of the the bus. Um, So the, you know, there would be like this situation where sometimes the bus would be so crowded and all the women are like smushed together in the back and the men are all men spreading in the front and it just felt so wrong and men didn't agree with this either so it wasn't you know not all of of course there were differences of opinion but you know the lots of men respected women's rights they also fought alongside with women for their rights but um everything was shut down there was crackdowns tear gas um and um, people were hit on the head with batons and people disappeared when they were too outspoken. So, so it was this mixture of defiance and terror that was happening. I was writing anti-Khomeini 
rhetorics, anti-regime rhetorics on the walls at night when no one was around. And that is a very huge offense. Could have possibly gotten me killed as well. Um, but I was lucky no one, um, you know, no one discovered me as I was doing those things. And in this atmosphere of terror, and you also mentioned just feeling that fragility of life, feeling the impermanence, going on the rooftop and, you know, seeing bombs being dropped and also feeling connected to that, the poetry. You mentioned that Iran is a nation of poets. Can you speak more about the role that poetry played in helping to cultivate resilience during that time for you and even for the whole nation? And if there were other things as well that, that helped you to, to get through this? Mm. Yeah, so with music and dancing and the arts and films and movies and novels, everything being censored and uh, not and many, many ways of many outlets for creativity were were all um, um, close to us. So poems, which have been passed down generation after generation, these 800-year-old, 900-year-old poems became a way of communication, a, a way to build resilience, to feel connected to something so much bigger. Spirituality was ingrained in our poems. I didn't identify the poems as mystical or spiritual at the time uh, because the poems were part of my world as the air I breathed. It was not that different. But when you hear a line like, even if from the sky poison befalls all, I am still sweetness, wrapped in sweetness, wrapped in sweetness, wrapped in sweetness. When you hear this, when the bombs are falling, <laughs> it just changes everything. You connect to where Rumi was, what his inner landscape was like in that moment when he recited, when he uttered those words. And it doesn't matter that you're six or seven years old when you hear that, you feel it. It's kind of a transmission that radiates to every cell of your being until you're everything and nothing at the same time. Thank you for sharing that. It just, it seems like it just completely shifts the context of what you're experiencing mm -hmm. to put it, to put it in that context of the all. Yeah, definitely. It was, uh, it just is such a sweet, profound and remarkable way to to bring 
bring something so magnificent into a moment that really, really needs it. I want to take a short pause from my conversation with Ari to share with you a chance for us to gather in community for you to alchemize whatever hardships you've endured or are enduring into deep soul gifts. From February 3rd to May 5th, I'm leading a different kind of a book club. It's based on my second book, The Book of She, and it's called The Book of She Club, a 13-week community initiation. So whether it's divorce, separation, depression, baby loss, any kind of loss, betrayal, illness, financial challenges, the pandemic, the list goes on and on. We're conditioned to see ourselves as failures when we're faced with these things. Why? Because modern society doesn't recognize the importance of these types of rites of passages or initiations as the means through which we shed outgrown layers of ourselves and better contribute to society because then we're better able to be fully ourselves and fulfill our destinies. And as a result of not having societal support when we go through these dark dips, we don't have the containers that we need to hold us during these very vulnerable times, volatile times, as we're being dismantled and reconfigured. And we contrast this to how things were for the ancients. Our ancestors once knew how to honor initiations. They knew that we needed to provide safe holding environments, wise context, helpful meaning making, and just tactical support for individuals to do the deep work that's required during these dips into the underworld. So just as a caterpillar needs a cocoon to become a butterfly, we also need these safe nests, these safe containers to become the next versions of ourselves. And without these in place, things can really go in the wrong direction. They can take longer than they need to, and they could risk never coming to fruition at all. Since we're in a rare time in history when we're each undergoing our unique individual initiations and we as a world are going through a global initiation, I would love to gather us together in a safe container to do this deep, important inner work together. So what we'll do over these 13 weeks is we'll use the archetypal map of the heroine's journey, which is a feminine's path to becoming her true self. It's laid out in my second book, The Book of She. And each week I'll guide you through one of the 13 phases of the heroine's journey. And I encourage you to read along as we go, as we'll, we'll traverse one phase, one chapter a week. And throughout this, I'll share crucial context and meaning making for what you're experiencing. We'll tap into important feminine archetypes that hold certain keys for different phases of the initiation. And all of this is in service of helping to orient you because these transitions can be very murky and very foggy. All, all along the way, you'll be empowered to trust yourself, to trust your experience, to trust your intuitive inner guidance, because that is what is leading you towards your next season, towards your next phase in life. 
What it will look like practically is we'll meet weekly for 75-minute Zoom classes. I'll share a Dharma talk on that week's theme, and we'll also do an embodiment practice and meditation, and we'll open up time for some Q&A and women's circle sharing. As always, if you can't attend live, you'll receive a recording after the class, and pandemic pricing is available. So to learn more and join us, head to sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag book club, sarahavonstover.com hashtag book club. That's sarahavonstover.com hashtag book club. And now back to my conversation with Ari. And having been steeped in this in this mysticism amidst immense trauma, do you at that time, I mean maybe at that time you didn't have the understanding of it, but did you and do you consider yourself a mystic? Um I suppose I'm not super, you know, yeah, activist, mystic, poet, those things people do describe me as, but I'm not necessarily, um, in, in Shiraz, the city I grew up with, we have this expression that says, one day yes, one day no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it yeah. just is, is kind of sometimes that fits me and sometimes it doesn't um at the moment I would say yes and how would you define a mystic in terms of just um your relationship to that maybe hat that you feel like you wear some days and not other days Mm -hmm. um I think a good way to describe it is by the myth of narcissist who from a Persian lens um, so the narcissist as we know was this uh, very good looking man who falls in love with his own image in the lake and he becomes frozen unable to move and he eventually dies So the Persian version has him diving into the lake to unite with his beloved. He risks everything. He doesn't know how to swim, but he goes deep in the waters of the unknown. And he drowns, of course. But two narcissist flowers emerge on the edge of the lake And those flowers are his eyes, seeing all of creation as a reflection of himself. And in their pleasure, they emit the most heavenly fragrance. That is the essence of mysticism for me, where when your narcissism is so ripened that you risk everything, you know, you're not stunted, frozen at at your own image. You know, that's where the afflictive narcissistic tendencies come in 
is because we're not moving. But as soon as we risk everything and do take a dive in, then we unite, we are beloved. And of course, you're going to die. You know, that's, that's, there's no guarantee for safety. And in fact, it's, uh, it's guaranteed that whoever dives in will die and whoever emerges is a new creation. And this, this um, um, death and reemergence kind of is all woven into the Persian mystical poetry. Even the word ishq, which is the word for love in Farsi, comes from the word ashare, which is a uh, plant it's a parasitic plant that attaches itself to the roots of another plant, like sandalwood is a, is a parasitic plant like that. And it uproots, it commandeers all the resources for, for itself until the original plant is bereft of anything and, uh, and is only a structure holding up ashake, holding up love. This feels like a good bridge because I know that you also wrote an article about this myth of narcissists and of kind of the epidemic of narcissism definitely in the U.S. Uh, you wrote this article for the Huffington Post mm-hmm. and you're really talking about how this myth just presents us of a model for how to move from what you call a transactional life to a more fulfilling relational one. And it seems like I want to back up a little bit that just to name that, that you emigrated to the U S at age 14. And it seems like this, this myth and this moving from like a transactional life to a more relational fulfilling one is, is something that you have brought to this country with you because it's something that we're not we're not good at here obviously very individualistic very transactional and what you've brought here just from someone who's just meeting you and seeing it from the outside it seems like you're you're really bringing these these deeper values of of connection of both just just these mundane seemingly mundane daily connections but also these these deeper mystical connections so I want to circle back to that in a little bit but first I just wanted to name this 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 movement to the U.S. and to ask you how that how that came about and you know why why did your family come here and what what was it like for you when you first made this transition um so it was literally a poem that saved my life. Um, my, I was, as I mentioned, I was really rebellious and I could have gone into big trouble. So my parents were like, all right, we've got to get her out of here. But at the time, no one would give uh, Iranian refugees a visa. Uh, we were banned. It was like an unofficial banned nation. And so, and it still is, you know, it's just been decades of people struggling to get out. So there's, people took extraordinary measures, you know, like there were um, smugglers would have their clients dress up as sheep and, uh, you know, so they would kind of like walk on 
their knees and hands along the Turkish-Iran border, and the sheep herders were just, so then, and then they would cross over, you know, hopefully without getting caught to to the Turkey side, or they would um, charge hefty sums to um, to smuggle people and drop them off at the at the border between Iran and Turkey and say, okay, now you run in a zigzag, zigzag pattern because if they shoot at you, you'll have a chance to survive. So knowing all this, we knew it was going to be quite difficult to get out of Iran. So my mother um, wrote a poem for India's Independence Day. And why India is because Iran and U.S. have no diplomatic relations, so there is no American embassy in Iran. Instead, we had to go to India. And so the, the Indian ambassador read my mother's poem. My mother is a poet, very gifted poet. And he really appreciated that. And he said he gave us a visa to go to India. So then through a another series of miraculous events, I was able to get a visa from the U.S. From, from, uh, to come to the U.S. But my parents had to go back because my sister was still in Iran. And that was one of the reasons I got to get the visa because my sister was still in Iran. Otherwise, there would have been like, now you guys are just going to migrate there and that's not what we want. So, um, you know, my sister made a huge sacrifice. She wanted to come to to the U.S. at the time. You know, she was older and she she uh, really, but she was like, no, let her go. So my parents made a huge sacrifice. I was only 14. And um, all of a sudden, um, my whole world is ripped apart for because I don't have my community. I don't have my parents. I don't have a language that I can communicate in. And, uh, and then I'm in the U.S. and I'm living with, uh, a, uh, with an American family for a few months to, to learn English. And it was pretty awful um, because I was so homesick. And I, um, it was, sometimes it was really hard that I was like, okay, I don't know if I can make this. I, I don't know if I can survive this. But, uh, where, but where was that family living when you, when you first came over? Las Cruces, New Mexico. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but but I knew that I couldn't go back to Iran, so I I uh, uh, toughened the doubts the best I could, and um, and yeah, so that's how I got to live in the U.S. And so you stayed with that family initially to learn English. How long were you with them? A few months. And then where did you go after that? Uh, then I lived with my brother who I hadn't seen for 10 years because he had left as a exchange student, um, you know, 10 years before the, you know, like the right before the revolution and then couldn't come back and we couldn't go see him. So it was a bit of an anthropological experiment um, living with someone who you had basically didn't know. So, so that was quite an adjustment for both of us too. Uh-huh. And then was there any point where, in, when your parents and your sister also came over here? It, where, uh, where are they now? 
So it took 21 years before my whole family was able to gather together at this in the same place at the same time. And it was in Vancouver, Canada. My sister and her husband moved to, and their son moved to Vancouver, Canada. And uh, we were, we came from the U.S. side to meet them. And my parents came from, um, yeah, my parents were, had gotten a, a green card and they they came in and uh, visited all of us at the same time and uh and then um two like uh two years later then my dad passed away so it was um yeah it was just been this very um um very very unusual situation where we couldn't see each other our family could not be together and that's I mean, unusual for Americans. The rest yeah. of the world do experience this, these kinds of um, trauma, for, for sure. What was it like to be reunited with your family after two decades in Vancouver? We danced and sang. <laughs> I bet. And uh, it was really sweet. Um, it was definitely wonderful and wonderful couple of weeks that that we or maybe one week that we we spent together and it seems like since that time that you arrived here in New Mexico at age 14 that you've done a really beautiful job at weaving together your life in Iran with your life here like you started Drop Poems, Not Bombs, which are love letters in the form of a verse of Rumi set to music uh, offered to the people of Iran in response to the rising tensions between the government of Iran and the U.S. You're a journalist writing about social justice issues. So just still, I'm really just feeling that that little girl in you who is writing the um anti-regime rhetoric on the walls at night, even though it would possibly risk your life. You're a musical ambassador of peace, facilitating drum and dance sessions for refugees and asylum seekers in California and Mexico. You created a stunning Oracle deck, which I have here in my living room called Rumi's Gift, featuring your own Persian uh, calligraphy. And you have your first book coming out this fall called A Girl Called Rumi. And your website is called Rumi with a View. So it seems that this legacy of mysticism and poetry and social justice and Rumi and the arts are essential to how you're weaving together these two cultures. And I'm curious if you can speak more about just the inspiration that led you to create these things that are bringing together this this human suffering with this illumination of um, this mystical poetry, particularly Rumi. Sure, so um, as a teenager, of course, living without my parents and the community of elders and peers who could guide and support me, for me to survive, it was important to immerse myself in the culture. 
And as you are aware, the mainstream American culture is devoid of poetry. So in order to fit in, I abandoned my immigrant story and rarely talked about what it was like in Iran. I never recited poetry the way I do now. But in my 20s, it was profound heartbreak and depression that brought me to poetry. And uh, Rumi was the bridge. I grew up mostly reciting Hafez. He was the poet I felt most connected with. He was from Shiraz, where I was from, and uh, I just loved his poetry. But um, there was something about the way Rumi spoke to the suffering in a way that it made sense to me. He was a really brilliant bridge between my past and present. And um, I believe that his poetry also happens to be a brilliant bridge between cultures. So, um, because it's as bright and relevant as it was 800 years ago. And that's why I've kind of been um, using his poetry mainly, but uh, in A Girl Called Rumi, I uh, incorporate Attar, who was one of Rumi's teachers. Uh, his brilliant seven valleys of love story, story the, the story of seekers who go to find enlightenment um, and just kind of weave that in. And this feels like it's also related to, you know, what we were talking about with the myth of narcissists about this moving from this kind of frozen individualism, this transactional life to a more fulfilling and relational one. Can you, can you speak more about that? And I don't know how this work, how this work that you're doing fits into that and how, how that's what this larger moment in, in time that we're, that we're in right now is calling us into. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it'd be fun to, for me to introduce the word for alchemy in Farsi. It's called kimyogari. And uh, in a materialistic understanding of alchemy, there's a doer and there's a subject, there's base metal and there's a elixir, a secret formula that can turn the base metal into gold. And in the mystic kimyogari, the mystic alchemist dances with participatory consciousness. So both she and the object of her alchemy are both transformed. And the elixir here is love. So this is kind of a, as we transform ourselves and, and the society becomes transformed and, and there's a possibility of moving away from this transactional life into a more fulfilling relational one. Um, the mystic really doesn't concern herself with personal growth, empowerment, or achievement. You know, she's basically um, this participatory con consciousness behooves her to be absolutely responsible and accountable in love, to be like a very trustworthy lover and have confidence in love's path of transformation. So the, the personal growth and the healthy relationships and all of that are kind of a byproduct. Whereas a stunted narcissist hates to take responsibility and counts on 
impunity and blaming others to come to their rescue. So the uh, this kind of individualism, uh, like racism, is is a manifestation of stunted narcissism. The America First movement, whatever, uh, never apologizing for war crimes or how uh, minorities were treated or the oppressed um, individuals. And uh, individualism really is a bad TV dinner experiment. Uh, we ate it in front of a screen. It didn't nourish us. It only made us ill and made our society dysfunctional. And uh, it robbed us of the vital and precious sense of being part of a larger community. So, so yeah, the, this uh, transactionalism is, is that, you know, how many Instagram viewers I have or how many TikTok videos um, I have, you know, the, what are the, uh, how am I, what is this person going to do for me? You know, it's always a transaction, something that, whereas a relational is a much more softer, more feminine way of interacting with the world where we're like, ah, who is this person? What are they doing? What's their world view like? You know, just getting to know each other is, is a really a beautiful thing. And, and this transactionalism is just not a, on the personal, interpersonal level, but absolutely our system um, encourages it. The, there's the shareholder meetings to increase profits and destroying actual livelihoods our wars are becoming more transactional where you just push a button and a whole village in Yemen is destroyed. We don't have to deal with the aftermath of seeing the carnage and destruction of broken families, communities, refugees, and so forth. So yeah, and it also we also deal with inner uh, transactionalism too, where we uh, are kind of a bouncer at the, at the door of the states of being and say, you can come in, you can't come in, you can come in and not, you know, and just not being this, we're not falling in love with, with every state and consider them as sacred. Uh, so, yeah. That last statement really strikes me about just kind of being, being that gatekeeper to these different states of being. And it seems like that's, that goes back to, to what, you were saying at the beginning of our conversation about how the more suffering you're you're experiencing, the more suffering you know, and you just say yes to in your system when it's present, the more capacity you have for joy. And it's and then this image of Narcissus diving into his image, just just diving in and not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing what's going to be on the other side of that. It's it's this um, just keep diving deep into your experience mm-hmm. with love. Right, right. And yeah. it seems, yeah, and this, I don't know if this is a term that, that you resonate with, but the, like, it seems that this is really the essence of the divine feminine. Mm-hmm. I, yes, I, I love that, uh, that phrase. And so that just allows you to, you know, rectify these two seemingly opposite things of a lot of trauma 
in your your childhood, in the country of your birth, and in this country now, with this just really deep and profound illumination from within, and this deep connection to the divine within daily life, because you're just diving in, like as that as that alchemist, as that 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 part of alchemy, just just diving in as love into whatever is here. Right. And I I do want to um, say a couple of things about that. One that um, we have maybe this kind of a uh, master servant paradigm going on, which is very patriarchal, you know, either my thoughts are serving me or, or I'm serving them kind of a thing, but there's the, what you're speaking of uh, divine femininity is not really uh, about who's dominating who it's more about being just keeping a good host, <laughs> you know, to our different states of being like, uh, we would never treat our, loved ones that way we wouldn't say oh are you serving me or am i you know i'm serving you we would just be very welcoming like we wouldn't treat our friends so with different emotions i would say the same kind of uh reverence and attention that we would as a long lost beloved beloved rather than someone who is like oh my god they're coming here again i have to entertain them you know that that type of uh uh, so, so just kind of like cleaning the house and uh, uh, how we're creating a sanctuary so these guests can come in and cultivating joy is such a beautiful way to do that. Yeah. Yeah, as you're saying that, I, I think about Rumi's poem, The Guest House. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So th- the way that the the trap of transactionalism can come into that too because the idea is that different uh, states of beings are guests and uh, different manifestations of the beloved, different face of the beloved. And each guest is bearing a gift from the beyond. And uh, and so we should greet them at the door with with all the reverence and joy that that we can we can have well what can happen is that we greet each guest and say hey what gift are you bringing me Uh uh (laughs) immediately go to the transactional which is we would never do that to to a guest in in a in a uh, we really are long lost beloved we're we're just we'd be so happy that despair or sadness or fear or or resistance to all of that i mean that's that's also i guess you don't have to like bypass resistance and go straight to you know like just say no not you i'm going to go to despair because right right so so, uh whatever is happening you know sometimes our system is super intelligent and our nervous system is not ready for um, deep dive into grief or despair or whatever it is. So, so it's like, no, 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 I'm not ready. I'm resisting. So, so then the resistance becomes our long lost beloved. And we're just with that. And we're like, what would you love my beloved right now? What can I get you? And you just give your state of being whatever 
you know, that they want. And they usually want what we would want. They want to drink nourishing tea. They want to go for a walk. You know, they're not like these demented monsters. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Just the, the fundamental nature of all states of consciousness are it's loving and it's all wanting the same things for us, just presenting in different ways. Mm -hmm. definitely so I want I want to hear more about your new book a girl called Rumi I know it's coming out in the fall and um, it's an intriguing title and I I read I read some excerpts of it online can you just speak to how this how this came to you and even just what the process was like in in writing it Mm mm-hmm so a girl called Rumi weaves in the uh, 12th century poet Attar, the person I spoke of, Rumi's teacher. It's a conference of the birds uh, is an allegory that he uses as seekers finding enlightenment. But uh, it's on the, against the backdrop of Iran-Iraq war and the 2009 election protests in Iran. And the move, uh, the book moves back and forth between past and present, and U.S. and Iran, all the while weaving this 900-year-old myth of seven valleys of love, and the conference of the birds. So the um, the way that it started was actually I was not a writer when I first met my husband, Brian, and he and I, as part of our courting we decided to write a screenplay together. And it kind of, that's when where the seed just started um, germinating. And we uh, wrote the script as a screenplay and submitted it to a contest and it got into the maybe semifinals, maybe quarterfinals, maybe finals, I don't quite remember. And, um, and then we just kind of set it aside and then um, I decided to can um, write a novel um, uh, about it maybe three years ago. And then that's when I started just really uh, diving in. Very cool. So how, how long ago was that, that you, that you um, did that screenplay with Brian? 2006. Okay. Yeah. So about a, just the the past decade and a half, you've, just started to consider yourself a writer? Um, I don't think, I, I, I don't know, like, so I rewrote the screenplay, but I didn't really consider myself a writer until about three years ago when I started publishing. Okay. <laughs> wow, and you, you're a beautiful writer. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the writing is very um, evocative. And I'm curious, are there any particular rituals or structures that supported you in writing this novel? Because I know it's, it's, it can be hard to write a book. Yes, I think fiction is particularly difficult. Um, so because it's not, you know, like you're not, you're kind of writing it for yourself, <laughs> the, the, the story. And um what I wrote the book like in a month and a half kind of thing, the first draft of the whole outline and it, it just kind of poured out of me and I was writing all the time, it seems like. 
Um, but of course, the revisions and all took a couple of years. Uh, the um, I don't know if I have really a process. I'm a huge fan of the fallow state. I allow myself not to be productive at all, um, not to do anything. You know, just if something comes to me, comes to me. If it doesn't, um, like I, I don't really go through writer's blocks because you know when I'm when nothing is coming. Maybe that is a writer's blog where I'm just kind of like, all right, I'm going to go do whatever I'm doing. And then something, um, an inspiration hits and, and then I go to work. So um, it's, it's very organic. I don't have a, a set um, ritual or, or a, a method for it. But when I do have to turn in, um, you know, when I have deadlines and edits and such, course I have to structure my time in a way that is uh, that meets those deadlines so so yeah that discipline is that's when it comes in yeah and Ari what is your current growing edge hmm. yeah the kindness bit where I'm um, just being dealing with my family and people that I'm around just with how can I become more a little kinder as I go along is uh is one thing that that keeps occupying my um some of my days I would say And how can people find out more about you? Do you have anything in particular that you're working on that you want to draw people to? And last, is there anything else that you want us to know about you? Um, I've got a, um, I'm going to be part of a Mystic Summit uh, February 1 through 5th. And it's uh, as part of the Shift Network, it's moderated by Mirabai Star, who's uh, huge with divine femininity. And uh, really beautiful writers and speakers are going to be there. Anne Lamont, Matthew Fox, Krishna Das, Gangaji, Andrew Harvey. And so that's um, happening uh, February 1 through 5th of this year and then it's a free free uh, online event um i'm i'm at roomywithaview.com uh, for more information for to read my articles or upcoming news other than that and then i'm on instagram too if you want to see my my videos of humming feeding hummingbirds from my home. <laughs> great i'll put links to all of those in the show notes um, the Shift Network Summit sounds really wonderful. I love Mirabai Star's work. Mm. It'd be great to hear you She's speaking there cool. too. Yeah. Wonderful. So is there anything else that you want to, to share with our listeners? I mean, you've already just been very generous with your time and wisdom. So if not, that's fine too. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I One thing that I keep, uh, stressing is the uh, the whatever is 
enjoyable is sustainable. So find a good habit. If you are into activism, find a type of activism that's enjoyable and that will be sustainable and you can use it as a marathon um, rather than a short burst of, of uh, effort and then getting a little flustered or, or losing energy. So, so yeah, whatever is uh, fine, what it is, what is that you absolutely enjoy and make it a daily habit. Well said. It's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Ari. It's, it's a real honor to have you here today and to get to know you better. And thank you for the really profound art and work and service that you're bringing to the world. Thank you, Sarah. You've been wonderful. And um, I look forward to getting to know you more. Likewise. Thank you so much for joining me and for taking this time out for yourself. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you'd take a moment to rate and review this podcast. That way, other women who might enjoy it can better find it. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.